since its founding in the Willamette Valley of Oregon. In 1882, the Benedictine monks of Mount Angel Abbey have carried on the ancient monastic practices of work and prayer. Over the years, as the church's needs, expectations, and ideas about ministry have changed, so has the hilltop. Welcome to the history and tradition of Mount Angel Abbey. With an eye on the future, it's vital to understand the past. And here's your host, Pat Ryan, to explore this timeless journey. Hello and welcome back to the fourth edition of the history and tradition of Mount Angel Abbey. And back with us is Mount Angel historian and Benedictine monk, Brother Cyril. Brother, we're making our way rapidly through this timeline, and now we've come to the era of Vatican II and how that influenced Mount Angel Abbey. Before we dive into this rich topic, can you open us up in prayer? Happy to do that. Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, we thank you for the many blessings of church councils, especially the most current church council, the Second Vatican Council. Lord, thank you for the blessings of inviting people to know you, Jesus, especially through the liturgy. Ask that this podcast will open all of our hearts to receive you more deeply. Amen. Amen. Brother Cyril, it's exciting. Now we're getting into current time almost, at least in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. And Vatican II opened up in 1962 on October 11th. And the next day, October 12th, well, kind of a day of infamy here in this part of the world. Mm-hmm. What happened on Columbus Day, October 12th, 1962? We had the worst storm in recorded weather history on that day. And this is what Vatican II looked like from the perspective of that storm. So as you said, October 11th, Vatican Council opened. October 12th, we had hurricane force winds over 80 miles an hour. And from the perspective of Mount Angel Abbey and Seminary, it was said that the hurricane force winds during the Columbus Day storm were described as the Holy Spirit on the way to the Vatican Council, and it was in a hurry. (laughs) I love that. That is fantastic. That is a genuine Mount Angel insight into the Second Vatican Council. Besides the wind, what were some of the most significant changes that the Second Vatican Council brought to the hilltop? A couple of things. So here we have the Abbey, the Benedictine community who lives here, and then the seminary. Basically, we live the vision of the Second Vatican Council, especially as a religious order and as a seminary. So adopting a Vatican II vision enables us to lead our church well and invite all people to come to know and love Jesus. That's the purpose of any church council. That's the purpose of the church. That's the purpose of the scriptures, is to know and love Jesus. The Vatican Council had 16 different documents, and I'm only going to emphasize basically the liturgical aspects of it, because that's where most people encounter the changes that took place. For example, in the Mass, It had been in Latin for centuries, and then it shifted to the vernacular, a rather interesting word. The word means native speech or language of a place. And then, for us as Benedictines, brother monks received the right to vote in chapter. So far as we are aware, 
St. Benedict was a brother. Because in the rule, the priest could stand next to the abbot to give blessings. Well, that indicates that the abbot was not a priest. That changed in centuries later. And then, so the brothers, basically, and the priest became two separate communities. And with the Second Vatican Council, they were reunited. So when brothers could vote on major decisions of the abbey, that hadn't happened for about a thousand years. That was a huge shift. So those are key blessings. Key challenges is not all Catholics agree that a switch from Latin liturgies to vernacular liturgies was a good idea. Some prefer the older way, and some do not. And then it took a long time for Benedictine brother monks to be received as full monks in the community. So having a vote is one thing, but knowing how to vote well is quite different. Mm. So was there animosity? What was the feeling at the time that this was instituted? For one thing, we had to discover what it meant. Remember, Benedictines, monks who were not ordained, had not voted in chapter for about a thousand years. So we had to discover what does that mean in general, and what does that mean specifically involving Benedictines. A constant thread that changed the structure of the seminary, in particular in the 60s and 70s, was that control was exercised by monks, and it decreased with each successive year. What happened was this. We realized, first, is that we needed to have a president-rector, president for the college, rector for the seminary, for the, the theology program, and then we put them into a president-rector's position. That was a huge shift. And then we realized that having a Benedictine in that position was probably not ideal, so we shifted to having a president-rector who was diocesan. And ever since the late 1960s, the president-rector of Mount Angel Seminary has been a diocesan priest. And then a couple of other things happened in our particular situation. The construction of the Abbey Library in 1970, and then we had an end of an era in our situation, which our builder abbot, Abbot Damien Gentius, he had started serving in 1950. He died in 1974. Most of the buildings on the hilltop and then beyond in our priories and other places were built under his administration. This is the history and tradition of Mount Angel Abbey, and we're visiting with Mount Angel historian and Benedictine monk, Brother Cyril. Brother, can you describe the senior leadership at the Abbey during this time? Abbot Anselm served 1974 to 1980. He was a very pious and faithful monk, but he only lasted six years. So just, it was, it were tumultuous times. It was challenging. He did two major decisions. One, he chose then Father Bonaventure's translation of the Psalms as the translation that we use in the monastery for our divine office. And then, he chose Bonaventure as his sub-prior. Well, Bonaventure became the next abbot. Mm. Well, Abbot Anselm moved into Mount Angel and became a very well-beloved pastor. He had been the head of the high school, and so he already knew many of the families. So he was well-beloved in the community. And what was going on with the Benedictine Oblates at this time? Oblates used to be just men living in the cloister as basically like monks, but not having a vote. 
and they simply work, live there and work there. So with the development of the Second Vatican Council, we started with about 50 oblates early on. Now we have over 600. So that was a major shift, and those are women and men. They follow a Benedictine style of life in their world. Wow, that's a very exciting development. Who were some of the Benedictine monks who distinguished themselves on the hilltop during this time period? The number one would be Father Bernard Sander. I'll give you a simple example of how significant he was. In his later life, he had a Christmas card mailing list of over 900 people. Oh, wow. Father Bernard was legendary. He learned this at University of Notre Dame in the late 40s about the significance of the laity. And so the summer conference at the Abbey, we had it from 82 to 2006. And that's still going at the University of Portland. And then the Christian in the World Series, which he was one of the founders of, that's still going. Mm-hmm. That's basically to educate lay people how to think as the church thinks. And that's been going ever since the 1980s. A couple of people that Father Bernard inspired to serve the church professionally, Leonardo and Patty DiFilippis of St. Luke Productions. Hmm. They had been Shakespearean actors in Ashland. In the off-season, they would present one-person saint plays. Father Bernard encouraged Leonardo and Patty to shift from part-time to full-time. About three decades later, they had already presented to a million people in live audiences. That's one example of somebody's life that was changed by Father Bernard, who have now affected hundreds, thousands, millions of other people. This is the history and tradition of Mount Angel Abbey, and our guest is Brother Cyril, Mount Angel historian and Benedictine monk. Who else distinguished themselves in this period of the late 20th century on the hilltop, brother? So, Father Martin Pollard served about 25 years as prior. Under him, he really got on board with the Second Vatican Council. He was promoting the, uh, a member of the Abbey Liturgical Commission. Remember, we'd shifted from Latin to English. He was very much on board with that. He probably learned that in Germany, Maria Locke, which is where some of the liturgical changes began in Europe that then made it to the Second Vatican Council. And then he promoted ecumenical dialogue with Protestant clergy as, in his time as prior to the 1960s. That was really pretty revolutionary. A couple of other monks, Father Patrick Marr. He became the founding prior of Monastery of the Ascension in south-central Idaho. He was also certainly on board with the Second Vatican Council changes as they were unfolding. And so he was implementing them as a new community was getting going. A curious thing about Father Patrick, he once climbed Mount Hood. Wow. And he also climbed Mount Vesuvius near Naples, Italy, just south of Rome. But he did so while it was erupting. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that mountain pretty quickly, should we say. Another founding prior, 1966, Ambrose Zenner. So he guided the development of the monastery there in south-central Mexico, about an hour south of Mexico City. His family name is known in the Portland area for the Zenner Sausage Company. Sure. Yeah. Then we go to Father Luke Eberle. He was a celebrated junior master 
basically so celebrated that the pattern that he set as junior master, as training the junior monks how to become senior monks, that pattern that he set lasted for decades. Interestingly, in his family, there were nine children. Four of them became Benedictines in Mount Angel. So sisters Bernadette and Therese were at Queen of Angels Monastery. Father Luke and his brother Benedict were at Mount Angel Abbey, and their nephew, Peter, became a monk of Mount Angel Abbey, and then was elected abbot some years later. So the, the Everly family has had an oversized impact on Mount Angel Abbey. Another would be Father Thomas Brockhouse. He was granted the highest award in the Canon Law Society of America at their 50th anniversary. Also, because we had a national German and English publication, he was asked to take on the case of Fortunata Viti, a 20th century Benedictine in central Italy. And as a canon lawyer, he led the process. Toward the end of his life, his mind was still very sharp. I happened to be there one day. His eyes were closed most of the time. An advice nurse came in, took his vital signs. And after some time, he said, Father Thomas, I think Jesus is calling you to be with him. And Father Thomas' words were, I won't keep him waiting. Wow. Yeah, and he was literally dazed from death, and his mind was still that sharp. That's incredible. Brother Cyril, beyond these big Benedictine personalities, how exactly did Vatican II affect the operations on the hilltop? We went from having a president and a rector to having one person, the president-rector, that was Father Boniface Lautz, who people in Mount Angel would know. He was quite a significant presence here. He then went to the Monastery of the Ascension, South Central Idaho, where he has been ever since. His description of how they shifted from a medieval program, basically, coming from the Council of Trent, six years of minor seminary, six years of major seminary, they were instructed to shift it into an American system. So from six and six, they shifted it to four, four, and four. And he basically said, we didn't know what we were supposed to do, but we woke up one day and realized that we needed to be a four years of high school, four years of college, and four years of graduate school program. So they simply made the shift. But it was necessary to be able to accommodate the seminary to a, an American way of thinking so we can get bishops to say, yes, this is an American Catholic seminary to send their students here. Overall, did the curriculum shift in a major way other than the structure? I mean, was the content adjusted too? Oh, absolutely. So this one turns out to be, we'll call this a feather in the cap of Mount Angel Seminary. About 30 years ago, some of the more visionary people in the seminary realized that we needed to have a unifying vision for the entire seminary program. And so they came up with a fairly erudite, very learned word or term, and that is communion ecclesiology. Communion, of course, is the Eucharist. Ecclesia is church. So the idea is this, that the Eucharist makes the church, or Holy Communion creates the church. And isn't that what Jesus did on at the Last Supper, mm. which we now celebrate on Holy Thursday? 
is that he gave us his body and his blood as a memorial of his presence in our world. So to structure the entire study program in the seminary based on how the church is formed, that made sense. Well, it turns out that it not only made sense, but it actually has made it into a church document, not named communion ecclesiology, a rather technical term, but the idea is literally that the communion or the Eucharist makes the church. That's how we're formed. That's how Jesus formed the church. So that vision, we're proud to say, as far as we can tell, we are the only seminary in the world that uses communion ecclesiology, or the idea that the Eucharist makes the church as the foundation of our educational program here. That's a pretty significant development. When you compare that approach at Mount Angel Abbey to another abbey, what would be the significant difference in having that Eucharistic center? Communion ecclesiology, or the, that idea, is found, I think, 20 times in our catalog. So it's both, there's a general description of what it means, and then numerous classes play into that understanding. So other schools would structure things in other ways. This is definitely a second Vatican Council way of structuring the training of priests. That is significant. It has made it into one church document, but the fact is it's there. And it is presented as a model. So out here in Oregon, which tends to be quite some distance from the, the center of power in the church and the center of power in the country, that's a very significant achievement for Mount Angel Seminary. And looking at this development of the Vatican II vision at Mount Angel Abbey, any other developments there that stick out for you? One of the things that the Vatican II character of the Abbey and Seminary continues to this day, and it continues to develop, is through the retreat house. We offer many different kinds of retreats for single people, for married people, for oblates or spiritual associates of the Abbey. So it is the Vatican Council and its guidance of the Church is imbued in our life. It's very much a part of our life. Now we have a Doctor of Ministry program to serve men and women and priests. We even have two bishops, one who completed his doctor of ministry. He's an American Samoa. And then we have a bishop of Orange who's studying here as well. So to have bishops coming to study in a seminary, that doesn't happen just anywhere. Wow. Well, we have moved through this history of Mount Angel Abbey at a rapid clip, Brother Cyril. Mm -hmm. And we're headed into our final episode. What lies ahead for us? The Abbey Library. I'm going to ask this question as a hook to inspire people to listen to the next topic, and that is, how did Mount Angel Abbey convince Alvar Aalto from Finland, one of the top five architects of the 20th century, to agree to design the Mount Angel Abbey Library? Ooh. So, I hope I have just sown a few interesting seeds for people to tie into the next topic to be able to discover how did this monastery in far-off Oregon get a world-class architect to agree to design its library. 
Well, your official title may be Benedictine Monk, but I would say Master Marketer needs to be there, too. That was a good tease. I like to give good teases because then, then people will listen. Looking at the library is a very good way to summarize what happens at Mount Angel Abbey. That library is a fixture, and a fixture for which we are abundantly proud and thankful. Before we get to that episode, the final episode in our series, could we ask you to offer a prayer in conclusion? Lord, we thank you for the vision of the church. May we be ever faithful to the way that your Holy Spirit is guiding us. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brother Cyril. Thank you. Bless you. You've been listening to The History and Tradition of Mount Angel Abbey with your host, Pat Ryan. Join us again as we explore the dynamic past of the Benedictine monks of Mount Angel Abbey in Oregon. We'll return to the hilltop to uncover more stories about their monastic practices of work and prayer, rooted deeply in the 1,500-year-old rule of St. Benedict. The History and Tradition of Mount Angel Abbey is produced at the studios of Mater Dei Radio in Portland, Oregon.